Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of Inside Weekly Trends. Today's Thursday. We're recording this on Thursday. Obviously, you're going to be hearing it Friday morning. Ryan, we have a lot to discuss. Um, <laughs> Things could change. Things may change. We should always emphasize that, especially in the context of talking about Elon Musk. Things, yep. Uh, circumstances may change by yeah, the time so, you hear this. You know, we went into this conversation because obviously we prep um, a few days prior to recording. We went into this conversation wanting to talk about how he rejected a place on the board. That was the biggest news of the week. And we thought, okay, that was going to be the conversation we were having today. As you know, Elon recently purchased 9.4% of Twitter. Um, He had an offer to join the board, ended up rejecting that offer. He would have been capped off at owning 14% of the company. I want to make sure people understand that. But Brian, let's talk about uh, the news that uh, came from Twitter um, this morning. Yeah, I, you know, I went to bed on Sunday when this news was breaking that he was not joining the board, wondering, does this mean all the gloves are off? He's going to go straight after an acquisition because he won't be tethered to this limit on the amount of, of Twitter that he can own. And yeah, I wondered if I was going to wake up and turn on Twitter.com and see, you know, Twitter, a Tesla brand, right? Or something like that overnight. I don't know how fast that stuff happens, but uh, I find myself in on today, Thursday, wondering if I wake up on Friday with that type At of this revelation. Point, who knows? Um, because, right. you know, this morning we found out that he offered to buy Twitter at $54.20 per share. Um, Mm -hmm. and he released, I don't know if we can call it a manifesto, but I do want to call call out some of the uh, points that he made um, in the uh, documents that he made public. What does he want to do? What's his case? His best and final offer, um, and there are a few points. I'll I'll point them out now. He said, I'm not playing the back-and-forth game. I'm moving straight to the end. It's a high price, and your shareholders will love it. I want to take a quick moment um, and give some sidebar here. He's offering 58% more than the fair market value of Twitter. Um, so obviously the board has a lot of pressure because what's the board's main responsibility to keep have the a fiduciary duty to make sure yep. that the stakeholders are getting the best possible value out of their investment, right? Exactly. And um, the next two points are the really, really interesting ones. If the deal does not work, given that I don't have confidence in the management of Twitter, nor um, do I believe that they can drive the necessary change to the public market. I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder. And the point right after that being, this is not a threat. It's simply not a good investment without the changes that need to be made. Brian, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Because he's he's essentially saying at the end, this isn't a threat, but I'm going to sell my shares and do what I've proven that I can do to other types of, uh, assets over the course of the past couple of years when he hypes something up and then decides he's not interested anymore and the value goes down exactly. he's saying i'm going to do the exact same thing to twitter which you know is a threat i don't it, he's saying it's not a threat but it, it's a threat. It, it is clearly a threat right and the the really interesting thing here is the way he is talking about the management and leadership at the company right that's that's a direct body blow to to confidence, I think. And he's, he's really going for the jugular with that statement. Uh, it makes me wonder what the leadership team is like that he would put in place. Like, would he be the leadership? I mean, would he be CEO if he, he bought this company? Would he would put he somebody he likes? Do that well, I, this is a great question because there's, there's a certain irony to the idea that Jack Dorsey could step away because, I mean, I guess he didn't explicitly say that he was stepping away because he was splitting too much time between uh, block formerly Square and and Twitter as CEO of both companies. But I think a lot of the criticism that he got 
over the past couple of years was, hey, you know, you, you need to be a full-time CEO here. And I think there are probably people on both sides that may have liked to have seen him pick one of the two. I, I read a funny article on that point this week that was saying that he's actually, uh, Bitcoin is his, his second CEO ship right now, which, yeah. you know, he's not CEO of anything Bitcoin related, but he's a huge Bitcoin backer. But that's neither here nor there. Um, what I want to get into, though, is, you know, what, what would a Musk-led Twitter look like in this perspective, right? He's, he's clearly taking advantage of something that has been set up it's Twitter's own making this whole situation, arguably, you know, under Jack's leadership. But, you know, their their earnings have not been good over the past two years. If you look at their EBITDA uh, year over year uh, going from, I think I, I put these numbers in here. It looks mm -hmm. like. Um, it was 52 million. Uh, yeah, 52, 52 million in 2021, right? 92% mm -hmm. uh, below its 2020 EBITDA of 624 million. Right. Crazy. They are, you know, they're not, they're not on a growth trajectory with those numbers. Uh, so what is it? Like is it an operational issue? Because I mean, Brian, we, you and there I, there was a huge lawsuit they had to pay, uh, they had to pay out, uh, that, that was impact impacted 2021, I believe. Uh, and I'm sure they, they would note that, but uh, you know, they've, they've struggled to figure out where their monetization mm -hmm. is going to, is going to grow user by user. And, you know, they've got a good ad business. But it's a great uh, platform I think, overall. I mean, I love Twitter blue. Well. I'm going to say this as a Twitter user. And I think we said hey. this in the podcast last week. I love the idea of somebody who enjoys using Twitter and is a power user yep. on in the leadership. I, I think that could have been a good outcome of Musk being on the board. Uh, there, there are a lot of other things that would have would have come with that. Now we're going to see what an outright acquisition might look like if if that's what goes through here. Overall, the bigger thing um, at play here, and the reason why he's so intrigued um, with Twitter, obviously, yes, he is a power user. Would love to see someone who actually loves and uses the platform frequently to have um, a place on the leadership team. Didn't expect it to turn to this, but obviously, he's, he's fighting for free speech. I think it's the biggest thing that he's really interested in. Um, you know, and I just, I'm curious, you know, what strategies he would put in place to make and create a Twitter that you know he would want to support uh, more and. If the proof's going to be in the execution there, right? Free speech is a great thing. Like it's hard, it's hard to knock free speech. And maybe some people would, right? Uh, but you know, Twitter's a private platform. They have the ability and the right to manage what's happening and being spread on their platform as a private entity. Mm -hmm. And even as you've seen, you know, some of these alternative social media outlets pop up over the past year or two that we're emphasizing free speech, no matter how much you emphasize free speech, you still have rules, right? Yeah. So to me, that's the question is where are the red lines? Cause I don't believe we're going to, I don't believe it's in anybody's interest to have Twitter just turn into, you know, what, what 4chan became or, you know, what, you know, other types of, uh, truth, know, truth social. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, true social. I can call them out. I haven't spent much time on there, but that, that's in that basket, right? Of these alternative platforms that have emphasized free speech, but still, you know, actually do have rules that they hold people to on the platform, no matter what of they course. say. So it's really, what does free speech mean to you, and how how do you draw? Everybody red lines? has a different characterization of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's there. There are relative. There are relative terms within you know the rules that come up in the context of free speech. And that, that'll be the question that Musk 
would have to answer, I think, in his leadership if he were to take over this company. Totally. I do have to point out a hilarious tweet I saw this morning, Brian, uh, because obviously you and I are pretty involved in like, and we follow a lot of Web3 mm -hmm. enthusiasts and blockchain um, mm -hmm. users on Twitter. Like we're very, you know, interested in the space. Uh, someone tweeted that, uh, you know, for a platform where a lot of its users are pushing for decentralization, it's funny to see how stoked they are. Uh, uh, one man <laughs> potentially mm -hmm. owning uh, Twitter and having it be, you know, even more centralized. So I just, uh, that, that tweet made me laugh and I'm, I'm just... I think we're all just curious at this point what Twitter's decision is going to be because mm -hmm. they're at a crossroads here. Um, obviously, again, you mentioned that this would great, uh, bring greater value to its um, shareholders, which is the responsibility of the board. Um, but it's kind of clear to say, and uh, I don't think I'm speaking out of terms, that they probably don't want Elon to um, have ownership over or at least this much power. Well, he's directly calling out the management and leadership it, yeah, and right now. Help. So I, I would assume that... Uh, unless the payouts are worth them leaving their jobs, they are probably not interested in somebody coming on who's going to take a leadership, take, take control of the company and immediately usher them out the door on the first day. Could the shareholders then, um, would they be you know, able to probably create a lawsuit against the board if they didn't take this decision? Well, you know, there already is a lawsuit against Musk for what, what he did. That, yes. that news broke earlier this week. And that's somebody who I think, basically had the same concern that we, we brought up in the podcast last week is that he didn't file his his form correctly earlier in showing that he had the intention of becoming an activist uh, investor. And as a result, he was able to acquire these shares slowly over a few weeks and then enjoy the, the gains that happened when the news broke. Sure. That, uh, you know, he was invited to take a board seat. So yeah, I think there, there's a lot of speculation that the board might try to adopt some kind of poison pill or something. I don't know if it's too late for that at this <laughs> point, if the offer has been made. I, I'm not really an expert in that in the procedural stuff there. But that's what people were talking about earlier this week was, that, you know, would the board try to find some sort of special clause they could insert into the rules that would prevent him from taking an action like this and succeeding? I, I don't know if they ha they still have that opportunity in front of them as an option now. Yeah, we're going to have to wait and see, just like um, you know, everybody, I guess, in this situation. Um, before this was the most popular news on Twitter, there was some other very popular news uh, that was being mm -hmm. tweeted a lot about this week. We'd love to dive in. Um, it's a complete 180. has nothing to do with, obviously, the Elon news. Um, so, okay. Well, plenty of Elon news, news for weeks to come, I'm sure. Yeah, of course. And I'm excited to see next week's episode. Who knows? You might be mm -hmm. offering to purchase Meta next week. But I mean, <laughs> changing the subject, uh, we That's have to probably a little price here. He'll need some help for that, I think. Yes. But yeah. I mean, what would be a good move? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> but we, we have to talk about Philadelphia uh, reinstating their indoor mask mandates. Yeah. Um, I want to share some numbers that um, obviously this is because of the recent COVID-19 uptick mm -hmm. that is uh, impacting a lot of areas, not just in the U.S., but on a global level. Um, the city registered 142 cases on Monday of um, this past week, 70% increase from the daily average uh, just 10 days before, um, but well below the 4,000 cases that were reported in early January. Um, what are your thoughts on Philadelphia taking these preventative measures? Because again, you know, it's 142 compared mm -hmm. to the original 4,000. That was really, really bad. Do you think they're... Um, do you think they're managing things okay in Philly, um, hoping that it doesn't get that bad again? Or do you think 
it's very it's early. Tough. I, I think I think the East Coast is going to be important to watch because I think that's what we've seen historically is as, the, as these outbreaks happen with new variants, we'll see them on the East Coast and then everything just kind of moves west across the country. And I think we're still waiting to see how bad this variant is in the context of past variants we've dealt with and what the uh, general state of the population and immunity and vaccination does to you know limit the impact from that. Uh, I'd say no city wants to be the one known as where the big outbreak happened and the one that got out of control. And so I think you see people erring on the side of caution there. Uh, that said, it's been really nice to go to some you know outdoor unmasked things over the past year and see you know opportunities happen. I. Uh, uh, it's tough. I I don't want to. I don't envy the people who are in the leadership positions and have to make that call. Uh, but I think the yeah. the other big uh, news we saw in tandem with this this week was that the mask requirements were extended by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, for uh, 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 planes, uh, public transportation. This uh, this requirement was set to expire. Uh, but uh, now they've extended the expiration date so that it will go right now through May 1st if if no further action is taken. You know, I honestly, I feel good about that on planes because planes are like one of those places and airports are one of those places where you just have such a yep. high density of people from different places converging. I, you know, I'm, I'm completely okay with wearing my mask oh, around. Oh, for sure. Like uh, large, before, large numbers of indoor people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, even before the pandemic, um, you know, obviously I wasn't frequently wearing masks, but... Yep. Long, long after. I mean, we we'll have to worry about this. I, I don't see that um, changing. And even, I mean, same with Ubers. And it's just personally, yeah, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. Like these small confined areas where you know you have a lot of people coming in and out, mm -hmm. you never know. And it doesn't even have to be for COVID. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. people have germs. I mean, it's just yeah, it's a good concern that um, you know, we we can be wearing our masks just to protect mm -hmm. ourselves and others in a few of these uh, like airports and planes. Yeah. So I I think these these Variants like this one will help us to understand and prepare for what a sort of soft hit by a variant could look like and understand like what, you know, what, because if it is something that doesn't debilitate your workforce and send people home and become a potential source of a potential cause of death for old people who encounter or people with compromised immune systems who encounter, you know, people within these spaces that get exposed, you know, th that's a different story and a different calculus than what we've been talking about for much of much of the pandemic. So I think every one of these, we're just going to have to watch and learn from and see, you know, can we, can we be a little bit more at ease with these things if we see the impact not being as bad? And ultimately, it's just going to have to be a live and learn experience for society to figure out how to adjust risk and what risk you are taking on personally or as a company or as a government. Exactly. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how we connect that those two topics, Elon <laughs> and Philly. We're going to have to wait and see. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a waiting game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see just if other cities will follow suit, um, you know, with Philly, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, with, I think, I think the cities are watching to see how bad it gets in these others. And I think people, the New York just got COVID right this past week, Eric Adams. Oh, I missed that. I, I missed yeah. that. He tested yeah. positive for COVID-19, uh, on Sunday. So it hasn't even mm -hmm. been a week. I don't know of any recent updates. Obviously this is coming out Friday morning. Mm -hmm. So, um, we can check in and see if he's feeling better or what it is, but, uh, 
he um, was on the record saying that he would introduce a mask mandate if the city's pandemic team recommends such a move. So we're going to have to wait mm -hmm. and see. Uh, we'll see about that. These larger cities, but I agree. Yeah, East Coast is really gonna. Um, we should keep our eyes on them. Mm -hmm. Big couple of weeks, yeah. and somebody's on the West Coast. I, I absolutely am. West Coast, West Coast. Why don't we get into the video highlights for of this course. week that we saw? We had some really good event content over the past week. Really good podcast from you too. And oh, hundred percent. Uh, we've got a clip from there. Yeah, um, we can start with the first. How about that? Um, we had an entertainment in the metaverse event um, last week, um, and we had a, a company called Clap or Encore, uh, a clap for Encore.com. Everybody should check them out. They've created this really, really awesome platform for musicians, entertainers to perform in the metaverse. Kid Cudi, you might have heard of him. Yeah. Uh, it's a co-founder of the company. Um, and we had uh, two members of the He's team. done some good work, I hear he has, yeah. he has, you know, de decent work. But uh, no, big Kid Cudi fan. Love what he's doing at Encore. Um, but we had uh, two members of their team, uh, one of them, Yannick Kofi, um, the head of artist relations at Encore. Um, he's an artist himself. We, we played his music uh, in, in the intro for the, for the interview. And um, yeah, he, he shared some thoughts about how augmented reality and how musicians can use AR and also how this isn't just for, um, you know, specific markets. So obviously a lot of people moved to LA historically to branch out in the entertainment field because of what Encore is building, because of the metaverse, you don't have to be in LA anymore to receive the recognition that you want as an artist. So it was really, really cool. Let's play the clip. I noticed you have a really tight community in LA, but for younger creators that are stuck in a city that's not LA, what does their path look like today in 2022 to break into the music industry? It seems like there's so many ways to do it. Encore is a great tool. Can you like give some advice for young performers or even entrepreneurs? Yes, I think uh, while we're moving into Web3, I think uh, authenticity is like that key factor and using that authenticity, authenticity to tell your unique story. And uh, mm. I think a tool like Encore is made for telling stories. So whether you have five fans or a million fans, if you're telling a unique story, there's gonna be some relatability to that where people want to be engaged and wanna hear what you say. So, you know, with Encore, um, being able to build a set in AR that's focused around a song, a specific song, and that, that tells that story, I think that's the great starting point for any artist, you know, just having something to say and being able to define who you are with the space that you're in. All right, let's bring it back. I, I really love that, and I'm interested to to see what what comes of this in the new age. I think every every era of the internet has brought some sort of new um, celebrity status to certain people who can attract mm -hmm. fandoms. And social media obviously went a long way. YouTube went a long way. We've seen you know stars like Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift come mm -hmm. up from you know from from being social media stars first. And then figuring out how to get their names out there. Uh, what do you see as the big value prop for Web three in terms of what uh, this new generation of uh, internet-born stars is is going to be able to accomplish? Of course, yeah. I'm just constantly thinking of the ways of how we can onboard the masses to Web three, and you know, we have a lot of these difficult to understand lingo, terminology, NFTs, etc., and uh, you know, just the basic and 
person that's currently a new power user of Web2 may not understand, you know, a lot of the stuff that's being mentioned, um, you know, in the Web3 space. So I always think about it from like a culture standpoint. So mm-hmm. that's why I appreciate the crypto companies that are building products to help advance art, help advance mm-hmm. music, help advance, um, you know, just general things that are connected to culture. Because mm-hmm. when you have a company like Encore that, yes, the, the metaverse is their tool, you know, the blockchain is what they want to use as a strategy to you know, create their company. But at the mm-hmm. end of the day, again, like their purpose, their mission is to help artists connect uh, with fans, you know, across the world, um, be able to participate in this industry, um, not just in Los Angeles, but anywhere you are. So um, I know that's a very meta point to make, but I'll just say again, yeah, like my, okay. my eyes are really usually on the culture, like what companies mm-hmm. are looking to bring the millions and millions of masses in through um, you know, music, through art, through fashion. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we, we had a lot of events at Inside, you know, focused on synergies between, you know, not just the metaverse, but also, I mean, we have shopping in the metaverse event mm-hmm. today. Um, a mm-hmm. lot of these really, really cool um, industries using the metaverse as a way to increase their value. Yeah. No, number one thing, I mean, the metaverse is really, is obviously really interesting because it creates spaces, like it creates performance spaces, right? And spaces that are not confined to, physical restraints. So I think that in of itself is really interesting for mm-hmm. performers. I, I think you've already seen, you know, the, the people, the types of stars who've come in and had live performances in contexts like Fortnite, for instance, and being able to turn those into, into places where they can actually, uh, you know, create a concert type experience, some kind uh, an experience that reaches fans and audience members in new ways. So that's interesting. To me, the other two big things that are interesting about Web3 are, control of uh, the the ability to have a transparent easy to use system for controlling rights for your material and for your own identity right i think you you, you look, need look no further than the stories of prince and of taylor swift to see what types of problems result when there is not trust and when things are done with you know non-transparent non uh artist first intent behind them by, you know, studios and owners of, of the music and the, the product that these people put out. So I, I think anything that offers solutions in that, in that space is worth watching and worth valuing and looking at. So, uh, you know, I, I think it'd be great to, to see examples of this if we see performers coming out who are able to, to leverage those resources within a Web3 context and show exactly. what can be done. I, I'm definitely on the lookout for, for seeing what, what people are trying. Yep. Yeah. And Encore is a wonderful company to follow. Um, this isn't the first event that we've had with them. And uh, hopefully we can invite them back to future events. But yeah, their, their platform is really, really neat. Um, I haven't had a chance myself to play in it, but I have seen demos, I mean, through our various events. Um, so we've gotten exclusive looks um, at not just Encore, but a lot of these cool companies um, at mm-hmm. Inside events. That's great. Awesome. Let's play the other clip uh, that I know we had down today. I, talk a little bit about your uh, your podcast for Venturing in VC. Uh, what was yes. that episode like? Yeah, yeah. So we spoke with Caitlin Holloway uh, for this week's live podcast, mm-hmm. Venturing in VC. Again, those happen every Tuesday at noon Pacific Standard Time. Uh, Caitlin is a founding partner at 776 Ventures. Um, obviously, you recognize 776 because um, Alexis Ohanian, this is a firm that he also created as well. He's also a founding partner. Um, I really enjoyed speaking with Caitlin. Um, and we, uh, 
we've of course spoke about um, the creation of the firm, but majority of the interview, I, no exaggeration, maybe like 50% of it was talking about her past um, experiences. She's had some really interesting jobs, um, starting her career out as a teacher um, and then working at Pixar for a little bit as an assistant director. Um, her name's cool. in a few credit scenes like for Up and a lot of these other cool ones. Mm -hmm. um, she led culture um, and people at Reddit, a company called Clout as well. She was employee number 25 um, and initialized. And now, of course, uh, she's building 776. But the basis of the conversation um, that we're going to be playing in this clip was just how exciting of a time it is um, to be pursuing opportunities in Web3 um, and overall just the current state of tech. Uh, so we're going to play the clip. Gosh, there's so much happening in our industry right now. Um, it's a busy you know, time in tech. <laughs> it's a beautiful time. I, I, I again, at the, at the risk of sounding and, and dating myself too much, I was there at the birth of Web 2 before we knew it would be called Web 2. Um, and being here for the birth of Web 3, I think that we are doing and managing this transition so much more gracefully than we did the first time. And, and there is, it has the same energy um, that is just... It, opportunity and access and and now ownership with web3 is mm -hmm. it, it is palpable like i i go to sleep at night thinking about this stuff i wake up in the morning thinking about it there there is a moment a window of opportunity that we all are experiencing collectively anyone who who is interested and in, and in looking at what's happening right now this is it they, they, these are the moments that are are potentially for some people once in a lifetime so seize the day shoot your shot all of the things that we can say to say get in there because it, there is so much goodness. She's got a lot of passion around this subject, which uh, is, is fun to see. And it's also, I, I think, important to see the perspective that she brings to this from, uh, you know, sort of generational awareness of what has happened over the course of waves of technology arriving on the web. Just, as we were sort of just talking about with, with pop stars, right? There mm -hmm. are um, new, new opportunities for individual creators, for entrepreneurs, for um, you know, anybody who is a user of these apps and services that are going to rely on Web3 technologies to, you know, take control over things for themselves. So uh, when she when she talks about this, uh, what, what are your initial thoughts when you hear when you when you heard this from her? I think that we and everybody understands this and will agree. We're just scratching the surface, you know, for Web3. Mm -hmm. It's such an exciting time. And going back to my previous point uh, for the other interview. Yes, I understand there's a lot of lingo and there's a, a lot of complexities that people maybe don't understand in the web three space but something mm -hmm. uh caitlin was passionate about mentioning was uh, you know there were so many resources tools people that you can listen to and learn from um shameless plug inside.com but uh, to, to, mm -hmm. to keep yourself informed about a lot of this uh movement um in the space but she is just a big advocate for people not getting left behind um, because mm -hmm. this is one of these moments in history that um, comes along, you know, every so often, but uh, when it does, those that are engaged, um, educated, informed about the space um, will reap its benefits. And obviously there will mm -hmm. be a lot of people that get left behind, but just with how accessible the internet is, um, you know, um, to at least, you know, for a lot, a lot of us these days, I, I think it's, it's difficult um, to just not at least have a general understanding of what's going on. So, I think uh, at any level, um, even just foundationally, it's good to understand uh, the technologies that you're using um, and how the internet can be improved and better and uh, what people believe it should look like in the coming years. Mm -hmm.
It's aspirational, right? I think a lot of people miss that. That Web Web, Web three is an aspiration right now. It's a set of values applied to at, that define attributes of what this new generation of apps, platforms, and systems will allow for and create natively. So, yeah, I think it's great people are talking about this, and I, we have a huge, huge wave of people trying things out for the first time. So, I'm looking forward to see what comes. All right, this week we are back with another inside uh, analyst. This time, senior analyst Nicholas Saravia is with us. He writes inside transportation every day. So go to inside.com and follow him there. Today, we're going to talk about something that's important to a lot of industries, but in the transportation industry is a particularly big topic, and that's greenification. So uh, we're going to talk about some of the aspects of greenification that have been most prevalent in uh, strategy for automakers, as well as air, the airline industry. Uh, Nicholas, uh, welcome to the stage. Thanks for coming today. Thanks for How's having it going, me. Nicholas? Right. Good, good. So gr greenification can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What does it mean to you and why is it an important topic right now in uh, the auto industry and the airline industry? So uh, greenification is sort of a push towards uh, zero carbon emissions. So it's some sort of, uh, you have your, your, your timelines and you're reaching for that goal. Uh, and in the airline industry, we're seeing, for example, a big push for uh, sustainable aviation fuels, uh, SAFs for short. Um, mm -hmm. They're believed to um, reduce carbon emissions uh, by 50 50 to 80% uh, when compared to traditional kerosene. Uh, essentially what they are is biomass, uh, cooking oil, feedstock, algae. And they're uh, having, airlines are having um, guidelines put in by uh, various levels. So mm -hmm. the Department of Energy has a goal of uh, airlines running on 100% SAFs by 2050. Uh, France earlier this year set up um, a law that requires a 1% SAF mix uh, along with kerosene. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that's already set up in place. And airports uh, around the world are setting their own goals. Uh, Seattle has set a 10% mix uh, for outgoing flights uh, by 2028. And uh, US airlines as a whole have set up uh, a goal for purchasing 3 million gallons by uh, 2030 to use. So mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of gallons to be purchased by by airlines, and we're seeing those deals uh, weekly. It sounds like we have different standards emerging in different regions, right? As far as the global industry is concerned, is there a movement within the industry or among individual airlines in different directions to adopt certain standards? Yeah, so a lot of airlines are choosing for a 10% mix and in a 10% mm -hmm. goal. Uh, mm -hmm. by 2030. So that seems mm -hmm. to be the standard along uh, airlines. And are there technical needs for the planes? Is this similar to how I think of ethanol being available at the pump when I show up at a gas station and see that uh, something I, you know, the same place where I would normally fill my car up is, you know, comprised of a certain percentage of, you know, corn-based fuel, right? Is does this work in the, in a same in the same way? Can the same planes handle this fuel, or are there specific specific upgrades or technical developments that are needed for this? 
Yeah, so uh, most engines require a mix with, with traditional kerosene. Um, mm -hmm. In December, United uh, flew the first uh, passenger flight with 100% staff, but it was with a modified right. engine uh, by GE yeah. on a 737 MAX 8. Mm -hmm. Are we moving into United's direction? then? Yeah, please. Sorry, after you, Brian. I was just going to ask, well, would you say United is one of the main airlines that's leading the way with this then? Or is it more we're seeing this come from everyone? Uh, uh, basically, it's a collective. Uh, there's a lot of big push in Europe, uh, Baltic Airways, for example, mm -hmm. and uh, Scandinavian Airlines as well. Uh, but in, in the U.S. as a whole, um, uh, they have set up through that group uh, to purchase uh, the three million. So that that's why there's a, there's a push uh, from these airlines. Yeah, and obviously, you know, we're talking about a mix, right? Is there an aspiration on any level to move past that and increase the share of fuel that is is taken up by by SAFs right now, or are we just looking at this horizon and is the rest just fanciful at this point? Right. So they're looking at the horizon and uh, yeah. seeing how development development goes. Mm -hmm. What is what does the timeline look like for achieving that? And do you think do you think people are on track, or do you think this is going to be you know a decade or more in the works? Is it near term? Uh, so it's going to be a, a slow transition. They're going to slowly mm -hmm. raise those goals, uh, most mm -hmm. likely, uh, and. Uh, by 2030, there is going to be uh, a substantial uh, percentage of that mix uh, consisting of SAFs. Uh, and by then, um, the first electric planes at mass scale will start to roll out. So like EasyJet is de developing an uh, electric plane uh, that is aimed at 2030. I see. Yeah, twenty thirty is a long way off. Uh, yeah. So, is it? Do you see the most likely scenario being that we sort of skip past total SAF fuel straight to the electric phase of planes by the time those become available and widely used? I see it uh, sort of similar as the mm -hmm. auto industry. So, yeah. Uh, please explain why. Yeah. First, we had uh, hybrids and. Um, they uh, were sort of slow to take off, but they're there and increasing year by year. And then uh, we had fully electric vehicles. And now they sort of coexist along with the tr traditional uh, fueled uh, vehicles. So we have that mix and the percentage of electric vehicles is growing by year. So I see, I see something similar happening here. Yeah, that's what I wonder is that will the growth curves look similar in terms of the share of fleets that gradually become electrified for airlines or is it likely to be a, a quick jump once the technology is there so the trend is more uh more or less the same but yeah. uh the uh percentage and growth it would be much less i assume i see what uh how would you are there, are there any other reasonable places to compare airline development of greenification goals with the auto industry is are we likely to see a more fully realized auto industry greenification before the airline industry is ready do you think the airline industry will catch up with the auto industry uh how would you compare the two uh the the auto industry is way more ahead in this front yeah. so uh yeah it, it's it, the, the timelines are uh closer for for the auto industry um 
the, for example, traditional automakers uh, like Volvo have set up for uh, 50% of their uh, car sales to be uh, EVs by 2030. Uh, and they're one-upping each other. So uh, Kia set up oh. 52% by 2030 uh, and, and so on. Maybe we can then zero in on um, EV space, you know, because obviously in your newsletter, you cover all transportation, both air and ground. Are there any other trends or insights that you're following in the EV space? I know Toyota recently just announced that they were launching a new EV. Uh, do you think that's going to do well? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so Toyota is it's an interesting story. So they released the BZ4X SUV, has uh, 252 uh, miles of uh, range uh, per charge. And it's it's the first time they release an EV since uh, 2014. They've been working on hydrogen fuel cells uh, as well, but uh, it's they've had sort of a, a gap there. Uh, and we're seeing this uh, across uh, Japanese automakers. Uh, what I believe is that uh, they they were pioneers in the space, uh, especially out here in the West uh, and, and bringing uh, the first hybrids and EVs uh, to market. However, they've been sort of busy with uh, the uh, scandals from uh, the carbon emission data uh, that was falsified. So uh, Toyota hey, has- Expand on that. What happened there with the falsification? Yeah, so Toyota, Nissan, uh, and uh, a number of other companies uh, were uh, basically giving out the wrong data off of uh, the amount of carbon emissions that uh, cars would uh, put out. So they've been uh, dealing with litigation uh, basically ever since, and it's still ongoing, hundreds of millions um, uh, in, in settlements with various countries uh, due to this. So they've been, they've been quite uh, busy uh, with that, and they have room to to make up for it. So if they want to uh, be able to set up a factory somewhere, they they, they need to uh, basically set up their EV goals to uh, reflect their new approach. And on the other end, a company that obviously has been leading the way for a long time is Tesla. Uh, Nicholas, did you have a chance to watch Elon's um, rodeo last week? I did. Uh, it was amazing. <laughs> what were your thoughts on it? Uh, especially like the the Doge uh, drone uh, <laughs> display, but uh, it, it, Tesla has a really interesting strategy. So uh, basically, they've been uh, one step ahead not only in terms of demand, so they make up seventy five percent of sales here in the U.S., but also uh, in terms of getting the resources. So uh, traditionally, uh, automakers get their uh, materials for the batteries from companies like Panasonic or, or Cattle, C-A-T-L, uh, which Tesla does, but they've also been going a step uh, ahead and going directly to future mine sites and signing contracts with the, with the mining companies there. It, it's interesting you bring that up because I believe Musk had a comment this past week where he said that Tesla is actively considering whether or not it needs to be getting into lithium mining to develop its you know, vertical access to, to lithium for its batteries, right? Uh, is this, do you think that's a realistic path? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's reasonable because, mm -hmm. uh, so they've been setting up these deals for future mining sites, uh, nickel mm -hmm. in Canada and Minnesota, lithium in Australia. And, uh, but the price of lithium is, has gone up substantially. So it's past 78,000 per ton. 
and it's up from 17,000 last year. Uh, and there's a slow production time to, uh, to get those materials processed. So, uh, yeah, I, I saw that tweet, and it, it makes perfect sense that they would want to go into it themselves with their methodologies and, uh, to try to make it faster. Yeah, my, my understanding is that lithium is actually pretty prevalent, right? It's just that the refining and the processing capacity is very, very limited. And that is it, is it accurate to say that that's really what he wants to have a handle on? Uh, yes, and yeah. it, he might even have, I'm assuming here, uh, a handle on exploration as well. So being mm. able to set up the mining sites closer to their uh, production facilities. Sure. To, to create a simplified supply chain as much as he possibly can, right? Right. Interesting. Well, what would you say, what does the timeline look like for the auto industry in terms of electrification? Where are we at in that journey? So these uh, goal po posts are moving ahead every week. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I foresee a substantial percentage from traditional car makers uh, mm -hmm. to reach uh, above 50% 50, 50 in sales uh, from EVs. Mm -hmm. uh, because Which you said seeing... is what Volvo's already setting for itself, right? Or Volkswagen was it? Both. Right, right. So uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Both, both of them have uh, pretty high uh, percentages uh, in mind. Uh, but they're also we're also seeing uh, as the quarterly um, numbers come in uh, a general trend. So like Mercedes mm -hmm. this week uh, we saw a 210% increase in their sales from battery electric vehicles, but mm -hmm. an overall decline by 15%. So their ice-based models are are, are doing uh, not so well right now. Is it possible that higher gas prices too in the United States? for the near term and I don't know, however long they linger, the, the longer prices stay high, do you think that's gonna drive more EV adoption or have we seen any indicators that that might be happening? Yeah, so uh, these numbers uh, basically speak for that. So that, that's pretty mm -hmm. recent uh, and, mm -hmm. and we, we, we've had uh, a progressive uh, increase in, 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 in gas since the start of the year. So the Q1 numbers are reflecting mm -hmm. that. One question I wanted to bring up with you that comes up with the SAFs earlier, mm -hmm. are, the, are the providers of SAFs the same as the providers of traditional fuel? Is this becoming a new line of business for these companies? Are they diversifying? Uh, or is it, or are these new players who are becoming the providers? Uh, so the, uh, they're getting it from traditional energy companies uh, right mm -hmm. now. What they are getting into, the airlines are getting into uh, synthetic SAFs. So synthetic, synthetic SAFs are a little bit uh, more complex. It requires a process that stores energy from um, renewable sources and mixes in hydrogen and other chemicals with mm -hmm. that energy to produce them. And uh, so we see Scandinavian Airlines, for example, has a joint venture with Shell to develop these and Lufthansa with uh, KNN as well. Well, let's 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 look ahead, uh, and thank thank you for coming on to talk about this today, Nicholas. This is a really interesting topic that I think you know obviously is relevant to anybody, uh, not only who works uh, in a in a space adjacent to these industries or in these industries, but anybody who uses vehicles or rides on planes. Right? Uh, looking ahead, what do you think the X factors are that will determine how fast these industries are at you know getting to these goalposts they have for for greenification? Uh, looking in the you know one to two year horizon, uh, what should we be watching to see how successful they are? 
Yeah, so it really depends on the acceleration of uh, the technology and, and the aircraft uh, front, uh, mm -hmm. but also in the, EV, in the EV that's sort of solved, it's been getting better. Uh, we're going to see solid uh, state batteries by uh, 2025, 2024, depending on, on, uh, on the company. But uh, overall, it, that seems to be solved on the auto front. Uh, now, demand is going to drive both and uh, also uh, shareholder pressure. So if we see more uh, pressure from the demand uh, and, and in terms of sales of electric vehicles, we'll see a faster approach. And that, that's sort of what we've been seeing this quarter uh, and, and last quarter as well. So uh, the, the goal po posts will, will move according to uh, actual dollars. Mm -hmm. And that, that could be either, could that be either direction or is it most likely to either stay in the same place or move farther ahead? Uh, so, uh, oh, uh, move farther ahead. Uh, yeah, the trend yeah. Generally seems uh, towards greenification. Yeah. I see. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I, as I said Thank earlier, you, if, any, if anybody likes uh, Nicholas's analysis, I encourage you to go to inside.com, subscribe to Inside Transportation. It's there for you every day with insights like the ones you've just heard. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody, for joining us once again for the Inside Weekly Trends podcast. We'll be right back here for you again next week. We're here every Friday for you. Watch us on YouTube. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and uh, give us a like or a nice review if your heart leads you in that direction. We would appreciate it. Uh, you can also follow all the news items we're talking about on inside.com every day. You can subscribe to our newsletters there if there's a topic you love. And you can join the conversation there and tell us what you think about the, all of the topics we've brought up. So we hope to talk to you there. Follow us on social media. We're inside on Twitter. We're inside.com on uh, LinkedIn. We'd love to talk to you more. And we'll see you next week.